worship team. Good morning, church. Good to, uh, good to be with you. You should be reaching for your Bibles uh, and turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be there in just a moment, but a couple things I just want to uh, just chat about before we uh, get to the Word. First of all, uh, you should have received, if you're a regular attender or a member here at Harvest, um, we uh, sent an email out this week uh, talking about our end-of-year uh, giving project, and uh, we're going to be seeking to raise $200,000 to boost our building fund, helps us maintain uh, this uh, facility. We're super grateful for it. Um, but we need to build that fund up again. And so if, uh, if uh, God puts it on your heart, read that email, ask your questions, uh, go to the uh, website. If you didn't get that email, we have a website set up with the same content for it, and that link is in uh, your notes as well. We're, we're really grateful for what God has done here. Obviously, you guys have been super faithful in your giving. Uh, the Lord has uh, provided uh, through you in, in uh, so many uh, great ways, and we're thankful for that. But it, it has been, uh, we've been just over four years in the building, but we've owned the building as of December 2nd for five years. Of course, we did a lot of renovations after we got it, and so five years means we're at the end of our first mortgage term. So we had, we had to re-up the mortgage, and we're, we're grateful um, uh, for where we're sitting financially, but uh, we did an appraisal, had to do an appraisal for the new mortgage. And uh, the value of the property is really, we're really thankful for it because it, it's a little bit more than what we paid for it and the renovation money we put in uh, four years ago. And that's just like, if you know, like that's awesome that it's, it's the valuation comes out like that. But beyond that, we owe uh, much less than half of that total amount. And so we're grateful uh, for all of that. So consider that as we uh, come to the end of the year. And then I do want to say that Thursday uh, is November 11th, Remembrance Day. And uh, as we understand it, the uh, public ceremonies, again, are not going to happen this year. We're uh, sad about that, uh, that Memorial Square, there will be no uh, service there. Everything is going to be private and live streamed again. Um, but uh, be sure that on November 11th, you're somewhere where you're uh, watching something on the, online or on television, one of the memorial services that are happening, and be sure to wear your poppy this week, and at 11 a.m. on Thursday, that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're pausing for that moment of silence. Uh, we're very grateful, and I think over the last 19 months, where our freedoms have been somewhat suspended, uh, we then begin to appreciate the value of the freedoms that we have. Amen? And those uh, values, of course, uh, the value of freedom and liberty in this country uh, purchased at great cost by those who have served our country in the military especially. And so uh, we're grateful for those veterans. We have a number of veterans that are part of our church family and grateful also for those uh, with our proximity to base Borden, those uh, current members of the Canadian Armed Forces, Jay, and uh, many others. We're grateful for you. So thank you for serving our country. So let's be sure to remember on November the 11th. Sound good? All right. Ready to get into the message? Awesome. All right. So let's, let's, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, but let's start with a quote by a man named Malcolm Gladwell. Maybe some of you have read uh, some of his books, uh, like Tipping Point or Outliers. Uh, he's a Canadian journalist. He writes on uh, matters related to culture and society. Really an intriguing writer. Um, and uh, let's, a quote of his that I really liked was, uh, people who bring transformative change have courage, know how to reframe the problem, and have a sense of urgency. 
And I love that definition, and that certainly uh, is a truism that applies to anyone regardless of their faith. But for Christians reading this, I believe it really hits the mark. I'm going to leave the quote up there, and I want us to just kind of think it through a little bit more from a Christian standpoint, because Christians are people who bring transformative change. We do it through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone comes into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, confessing their sins, they begin the transforming process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so we have, uh, we have in, in the very first statement uh, something that aligns perfectly with who we are. Christians bring transformative change through the gospel. And then notice these three characteristics. They manifest courage in doing so. It takes boldness to be able to share the gospel with someone. Christians reframe the problem. We understand the world according to what the Word of God tells us. And so we reframe the problem. We reframe every problem around human depravity, the problem of sin and the condemnation of death that hangs over each one of us. Thus, the impetus to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, Christians bring transformative change having a sense of urgency with respect to the mission that has been entrusted to us. And that latter point, urgency, is what we'll see in in this week's passage in Acts chapter 9. Peter, in fact, the apostle, is urged to go without delay to a certain town to meet a pressing need that was happening in in that particular village the church in Joppa, actually. And along the way, as we look at this account and we see how it all played out, we're going to be challenged concerning our own sense of urgency with respect to the gospel mission. Do do you sense the urgency of the mission that Jesus Christ has given to you? Because all around us, people are living their lives without Christ. They are, in the words of the old hymn, they are lost and they are blind. And you live in the neighborhood with them. They're beside you on either side. They're behind your back fence. They're across the street. They're in the workplace with you. They're in your own families. People who don't have Christ living their lives without Him, spiritually lost and blind, and in peril of eternal separation from God. And as soon as you say that, that these who are without Christ are facing an eternity without him, that should increase our urgency by hearing that alone. And the reality is we have good news for them. We have the gospel. But do you and I sense the urgency of sharing it with them? And if we do... What exactly does that urgency look like? And that's what we're going to see in in the passage here. So let me read this. It's Acts chapter 9, 32 uh, to the end of the chapter. Now, as Peter uh, went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Leda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose 
And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And she was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. All right, in your notes and on the screen, when I grasp the urgency of the gospel mission, first of all, I look for God to do the impossible. And we just read an account that has two impossible things that happened. One, someone who was paralyzed for eight years was able to walk again. And in another, someone who had died, was dead, was raised back to life. These are impossible things. And when we sense the urgency of the gospel message, We will look for God and believe that God will, can, and will do impossible things. For Peter's part, verse 32, he's carrying on an itinerant ministry along the coastal towns of Judea and Samaria, the region known as Sharon, a coastal plain. He meets with, notice here, he meets with the saints. You see that word again in verse 41. And uh, just so there's some clarity here, this is a reference to those who are believers, they're Christians, they're saints. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, you think that that requires some big papal declaration that you would become a saint. But I'm here to tell you today that if your sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, you are declared to be holy or righteous or sanctified or set aside, which is the word saint. And so if you're a believer, you're a saint. Put it in front of your name this week and all your, every time you write your signature, put it, put it right down at the bottom of your email, St. Todd of Barry. <laughs> Go ahead, because you're a saint. None of that has anything to do with the message, but I thought it was fun, so I put it in. <laughs> so we have these, uh, these saints, um, verse 41, verse 32, I'm sorry, who lived at Lydda. Verse 33, and there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden, paralyzed. Peter's coming to this town. He's been there for eight years. Verse 34, without any request to do so, we don't have any kind of like preamble. The man doesn't ask for it. It's not the reason why he came. But Peter just says to this man, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. If you have your Bible open and you're making notes in some way or highlighting, go ahead and and, and underline this or highlight this right here. Jesus Christ heals you. We're going to come back to that phrase near the end. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately, the Bible tells us, he arose. 
And the result was, verse 35, and this is what we're going after, the result was that all the residents of Lydda and the whole coastal region of Sharon saw him walking, healed, and they turned to the Lord. This resulted in many more people becoming followers of Christ. And once again, a miracle is used by God to advance the mission. Now, it's always so important whenever we're studying any kind of the miracle passages, it's so important for us to understand these. And it's so important to say at this point that the miracle is not the mission. The, the miracle is not the mission. The healing is not the point. In fact, John Polhill said this in his commentary, the miracles in Acts are signs of the power of Jesus and often serve as the initial basis that leads to ultimate commitment. They are never, however, a substitute for faith. They're the sign. They point to the message. And the reality is some well-intentioned believers mistakenly focus on the miraculous signs, making that the thing, rather than on the message that the sign is designed to point to. And we have to be careful as Christians that we're not boxing God in, that God must do it this way with our desire to see Him do supernatural things. I was doing a lot of reading and research on this, and, and uh, one of the commentators I'm working with throughout this series is, is uh, Eckhart Sch uh, Schnabel's stuff. And I just, I read this and I went, I can't say this any better, I just need to to give this quote, but it's an extended, longer quote, so bear with me as I read this. And this quote is in your notes at hbc.info. Miracles, this is what he said, miracles do not automatically lead to conversions and church growth, and the lack of miracles does not hinder or prevent conversions and church growth. Miracles are caused by Jesus' power, and conversions are caused by Jesus' power. Sometimes Jesus chooses to heal miraculously, sometimes he does not heal, despite the believer's prayers and their faith in the Lord. Sometimes Jesus chooses to lead, a large, lead larger numbers of people to come to faith in him, resulting in dramatic church growth. And sometimes it's only an individual here or there who comes to faith, resulting in slow church growth. It is not the faith of the pastor, evangelist, or missionary. We could add, it's not the faith of the church or the individual Christian, nor is it the method used that accounts for either rapid or slow church growth. Here it is. But the sovereign and inscrutable will of Jesus, who is Lord in both cases. Amen? I mean, that's, that's gold. Schnabel said it best. I couldn't say it any better. And so when we read about a healing like this one, it compels us to look for God to do the impossible. We believe that he can. We believe that he has. We should pray in faith, believing that he's done it before and he could do it again. But we do not impose our will on God. We do not press God to meet our expectations of what we think he ought to do. And further, we should always see conversion, not physical healing, as the greater miracle. That someone would have their sins forgiven is always the greater miracle. 
Physical healing, if that ever comes for someone. Physical healing is something that still is only temporal. At some point, you're still going to die. But the forgiveness of sins extends right on into eternity. It's a forever healing that's never going to be taken away from us again. We must always see conversion, not physical healing, as the greater miracle. And in fact, if we could think about one of the times that Jesus healed a paralytic person, remember this time when they had to open up the roof because there was such a crowd and the friends lowered this guy down? In Luke chapter 5, the religious leaders, they were actually pretty upset with Jesus because he had said to the man before he even healed him, do you remember what he had said to the man? Luke 5.20, your sins are forgiven you. Now, as soon as he said that, the religious leaders were like out of their mind upset with him. Because in saying that he could forgive their sins, he was claiming to be God. He was affirming the fact that he was, in fact, the Son of God. He says to him, your sins are forgiven you. And they considered that to be blasphemy. And so Jesus replied to the religious leaders. Here's what he said. This is Luke 5, 23. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk. Which of those is easier? And just to tick him off, he healed him. And he rose and he walked. He made his point. The forgiveness of sins is the greater miracle. Because to use Malcolm Gladwell's phrase, it frames the problem. It correctly frames the problem of our sin nature and the condemnation of death that we're under. It doesn't, the, the, the problem, in other words, if we're, if we're properly framing the problem, it's not that you can't walk. It's not that you are infirmed in some way. It's not whatever crushing circumstance you're facing right now. That's not the problem. Whatever the crisis is that brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, that is not the problem. The problem is you are separated from God by your sin. And when we properly reframe the problem, we're pointing people to the greater healing of the forgiveness of their sins. And if you've been saved, you've already received the greatest healing of all. You may still be afflicted physically or mentally in some way, but it is of small consequence next to the promise of eternity with Christ. Look for God to do the impossible. Believe that He does miracles. Believe that He saves and forgives sin. And then next, see this. I go wherever he leads me. When I grasp the urgency of the gospel mission, I go wherever he leads me. So the first healing happens. We read about both of these. The first healing happens. Some time passes to allow for word to spread because it wasn't like, you know, the healing happened in Lydda and then all of a sudden people were tweeting about it and, and there was like a TikTok of the guy walking and, and so like everybody's like the word is spreading that, that, that this healing has happened, but it wasn't that. It took some time for the word to spread throughout that region of Sharon. And so some time passes, then verse 36, we come into this next episode in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha 
Tabitha was her Aramaic name. That was the name she went by. But Luke, who's writing Acts, so he wrote the Gospel of Luke. He writes Acts as, as volume two. He writes both of these books to a man named Theophilus, who was a Greek speaker. And so both of these books are written in Greek. And so because her name was in Aramaic and they used that for respect to her, he translates the name for his reader, uh, Theophilus, for all of his readers and puts her Greek name here, which is Dorcas. And, and both of these names, by the way, he translates it because both of these names mean gazelle, which is kind of cool. Now, I'm going to, I'm just a little bit of uh, advice to parents if you're expecting a daughter and you're thinking about names. And if you're trying to choose between Tabitha and Dorcas, No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> like, Dorcas isn't going to fly in the playground. I'm just saying to you, just... <laughs> Tabitha's a great choice. So, so Tabitha here, she was full of good works and acts of charity. So, like, she's that person in church. Like, she's a food bank volunteer. She's packing backpacks for kids. She's donating to the Hope Fund. Like, she's got it all going on. She's one of those amazing Christians. It's just like tireless acts of love and mercy, of compassion and justice is what she's all about. And she impacted not only the people that she was serving, but she's that person where everyone else is just blessed by what she does. So, like, the entire church is blessed by Tabitha. We have people like Tabitha here at this church who are doing all these different volunteering and helping people who are on the margins and just blessing so many. And in fact, we see in verse 39 that the very specific thing that she did is she made clothes for widows and she impacted the lives of those widows. Verse 37, in those days, though sadly, she became ill and she died. And then they prepared her body for a burial They'd washed her, they laid her in, a, in, a, in an upper room. And even having done that, though, these are, these are newer believers. They know what God had done for them, and, and so they still have it in their mind that miracles can happen. They knew that miracles have been happening since the time. There had certainly been miracles in the Old Testament. That was so many hundreds of years ago. But then they knew that Jesus had come, and he had done so many different miracles, including raising some from the dead. He had raised Lazarus. He had raised Darius' daughter. They had seen the apostles carry on with similar miracles, though at this point, according to the biblical record, none of them had raised anyone from the dead. And so full of faith and, and really having nothing to lose, I mean, she's dead. And we got nothing to lose here. We might as well ask for some prayer for her. Verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, knowing that Aeneas had been healed, because word had spread about that, the disciples hearing that Peter was still there, sent two men urging him. This is where we see the urgency. This is an earnest plea. It's an insistence, but it has a time element to it where I need you to do this now. And in fact, they say, please come to us without delay. Now I got to Google Maps. Both these communities still exist today under different names. And so I popped in this one and that one and did the walkie guy thing at the top, the dotted line on Google Maps. Everybody tracking with me? You know what I'm talking about? Four and a half hours each way to walk that. 
So they send the two messengers, four and a half hours. Then they convince Peter. He answers right away. So he's going with them. He didn't know he was up for a four and a half hour walk. I don't know what he had done that day. <laughs> Off they go. Nine hours. Tabitha's dead upstairs in the room for another nine hours until Peter gets there. So there's so much faith going on here. So there she is in the upper room. They've prepared her body. They've called for Peter. He's come. You get a sense of Peter's understanding of the urgency of all of this. You get a sense of the Lord's leading in it, even in his own life because Peter rises. He goes with them. Peter gets it. I'm going to go wherever God tells me to go. Now we around here, the, the main culture, the main way that we've sought to help you bring other people to faith in Christ, and there are people who have been here today who have come to Christ as a result of this very methodology, if I can put it that way, but we've had this come and see approach to evangelism. You go to your friends, you go to your coworkers, you go to whomever, your neighbors, and you say, hey, come and see, come to church, come hear our worship, come meet our people, come hear the message. It's been a come and see approach to evangelism. And we do that on the basis of John chapter one, verse 46, where Philip, who had already decided to follow Jesus, already been called to follow Jesus, says to his friend Nathaniel, you need to come and see a man who told me all about myself. Come and see. Nathaniel was skeptical, but he came. And he eventually too began following Jesus. Come and see the Christ. But we all know, and especially if you've tried this, if you've gone to some people and you've said, hey, why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you come and see what's going on in our church? You know very well that if you've made that invitation that there are some people who have said, nope. It's true, right? Lots of people just say no. And for those people, you have to have the other side of the strategy, which is the people that are never going to come and see, you need to go and tell. We need to go and tell. In fact, the Great Commission starts with that word go. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them, teach them. It all starts with go. And, and we're never going to have this sense of urgency around the gospel mission until we have this understanding that we may have to go. We do have to go. And as soon as we decide that that's true, there's a bunch of implications. And I'll give you some of these. I have six or seven here. And, and just understand that uh, this isn't an exhaustive list, just some things I thought of. Six implications of go and tell. First of all, um, it may mean that I have to go places that I'm uncomfortable. I may have to go places that I feel uncomfortable at. Or secondly, I may have to nurture relationships with people that I have little in common with. In fact, thirdly, I may have to learn about someone else's culture in order to, in order to be able to share the gospel with them. Fourth, I wrote down, we need to take the time to listen to a person's story, to understand their heart and where they're coming from. It can't simply be, hey, by the way, here's the gospel. I need to hear what's going on in their lives. I need to show understanding and care. 
That leads right into the fifth thing, sacrificing time and even money. If I'm going to go and tell, it's going to cost me something. Sixth, I wrote down, for sure, I have to take time to earnestly pray for them because I can't make this happen. And a seventh, I have to know what to say to them when I go. If it's go and tell, I've got to have an understanding of the gospel. I have to be able to share my own story and share the word of God with them. I have to train myself to be able to do that, to tell the very simple message of the gospel. Those are the implications. And as Christians, we have to be willing to go wherever God would lead us, just as Peter was willing to jump up and walk four and a half hours to be able to share the message in Joppa. All right, here's the third. When I grasp the urgency of the gospel mission, I remain humble before him. Just note this, uh, pride is the root of sin. We know that pride is the root of all sin, but humility is the root of salvation. And it is the means by which God can use us. If we remain humble servants of the Lord, and Peter, as an apostle, was the undisputed leader of the church at this point. He's, like, Peter's the go-to guy. He's the grand poobah of apostles. And it's obvious that with this urgent appeal to him to come to Joppa, that the people understood that. That they went to get Peter because they knew who Peter was. But then notice, like, he's not flaunting that. He's not, like, displaying that for everyone to see. You know what? I'm Peter. Peter's here. In fact, when he arrived, verse 39 continues, when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him. They're weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. I mean, they're really broken up about this, and they're mourning and grieving this deeply. This is a dearly loved member of the church that has passed away. And in my years of pastoral ministry, I've done many such funerals, and it leaves a gap in the church. Everyone feels the weight. I know exactly the kind of person that Tabitha was, because I've met these people. And when you lose them, you lose something out of the heart of your church. And... um, And while other healings had taken place in very public places, so Peter's coming into this, this dearly loved member of the church is now deceased. The widows are all crying. Everybody's upset. Peter, now he prefers to model in this case what Jesus had done in the healing of Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, Mark chapter 5. He had done some other healings that were very public. But in this case, Peter notice verse 40 says, he put them all outside. That's exactly what Jesus did with Darius' daughter. Put them all out. Okay, everyone out, out of the room. Out, 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 close the door. Now it's just Peter and Tabitha's body left in the room. And then with no one watching, he knelt down, got down on his knees, and he prayed. And with all three of these actions, get all the witnesses out, getting on his knees, and praying to God, he's demonstrating tremendous Tremendous humility. Peter was not about to make a show of this. I mean, again, this is the first K 
case of someone other than Jesus in the New Testament, the first case of someone other than Jesus raising someone from the dead. It's, only, it's, it's, it's one of only two raising from the dead that we see that the apostles do. So it's rare. There's no arrogance at all in Peter about what is to happen. There's no vaunting of his high position as, as the leader of the apostles, the leader of the church. There is kneeling and there is humble prayer. And he does it alone in a room. He didn't want to be like Simon the Magician who we looked at in chapter 8 who wanted to pay money for the ability to dispense the Holy Spirit. Simon the Magician was a showman, an entertainer, but Peter was not at all like that. Simon wanted a self-aggrandizing show and Peter saw just the opposite. And I think about that and I'm, I'm not sure why any of us would ever want to take any credit for anything when it's clear that everything we have and everything that the Lord does is by His kindness and His power. That we're helpless. That anything good we accomplish comes as a result of God's power flowing through this. Why would we need, for example, any recognition? Why would we ever need any credit? Step back to the moment of your conversion and one step before you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I were headed to hell forever. And through no work of our own, God stepped us into the place where our eternity is now assured with Him and our sins are forever forgiven. Why then after that is accomplished, that our eternal destiny has changed, would we ever take credit for anything we do in life? It's all the Lord's. Amen? It's all the Lord's. He's done all of it. And to this matter of the urgency of the gospel mission, does it not slow the urgency of the mission when we pause for applause? Give me credit. Look at what I did. Look at all that's been accomplished. That slows the mission because we've drawn the spotlight to ourselves. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to brag in anything, brag in Jesus. Brag about Jesus. Boast in what he's done for us. When God, when God directs our path and empowers our work and then receives all of the glory, we can then remain focused on the mission that's been entrusted to us. Because once we get to eternity, once we've passed from this life and we're all there, then we can reflect back. Then we can bask in the glory of a mission that has been accomplished. But until then, the mission is ongoing. There's no time to bask in the glory, in the glow of what was accomplished because we're still very much in the midst of accomplishing it. 
And so until that day, we remain humble before Him. And obviously, really closely related to this, see this next in your notes, I depend wholly on God. I depend wholly on God in every aspect of my life, not just the mission. I should be demonstrating my utter and complete dependency on the Lord Jesus Christ. I spoke to a pastor friend this week. We were supposed to uh, connect, and then he had a tragic funeral that happened in the church, and it was really a big thing and very uh, difficult for him. And I was thinking about funerals and dependency on God, and I was thinking, like, if you... As a pastor, if I, you know, I'm meeting with a family after they've lost a loved one, and I'm saying, like, what passage of Scripture would you like? More often than not, families are going to say Psalm 23. They say that because it's super familiar, because, you know, it's got that line, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so, like, it kind of relates to funerals. But, man, we do ourselves a real disservice if we only pull out Psalm 23 for funerals. Because when we start talking about dependency on God, That's exactly how Psalm 23 actually starts. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I really like the CSB translation of this. The Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. Isn't that great? I have what I need. I depend wholly on God. And can we say that? And do we say that? Because the the tragedy is when we start talking about dependency on God, we're going to leave here today. We're going to get into our week tomorrow. We're going to go back to our jobs. And we're going to work really hard in the next week to make a bunch of money, some of which we're going to have because we think there's still some things that we need that we don't have. And we're going to work week after week and month after month and year after year throughout the entirety of our lives trying to reach for things that we think we need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. We should say that to ourselves every day this week. Wake up. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. And that's going to change our perspective on absolutely everything. Now, Peter had no inherent ability to heal, even as an apostle, even as the head apostle. He knew that if the spirit wasn't going to work through him, that it wasn't going to happen. Tabitha wasn't going to live. Tabitha was still going to be dead when he opened that door and those widows would still be standing there. Verse 40. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. I don't know what's going on in his head in the moment, but I'm terrified to think about ever saying such a thing. What what kind of faith do you have to have to say that to a dead body and to really believe that it could happen? He's an apostle, and I know the Holy Spirit was on him in a powerful way, and he couldn't have gone in doing it without knowing that the Spirit was going to work through him that day in that way. Because according to the biblical record, this is the first time an apostle's ever done this. And so there had to have been other opportunities for him to do it, but he didn't until this moment. The Spirit lined everything up, and he had the faith to believe that it was going to happen, but was still entirely dependent on God. And she opened her eyes. 
And when she saw Peter, she sat up. I suppose that when you're dead and then you're not dead and there's a guy you don't know in your room. <laughs> and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. That's amazing. And it all happens only because the Lord decided it would be so. The commentators rightly point out that this is a resuscitation and not a resurrection. There's an important distinction. It's a resuscitation and not a resurrection in the sense that it's still a temporary restoration of life. Tabitha would eventually die. Anyone who was resuscitated in the scripture would eventually die a normal death like we all will, unless the Lord comes first. In fact, it's just so interesting to think about the 10 situations where we have a raising back to life, uh, 10 examples of this in the Bible, this is all of them, uh, nine resuscitations and only one resurrection. Um, I think we all know who that was. Here's the list. Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son. Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son. This is weird. Elisha's bones raised a man who was thrown into his grave. And that was weird. These guys had this dead body they were going to bury, and then something happened, and they just threw him in the grave, and his body touched Elisha's bones, and boom, the guy was alive again. It's okay, it's okay to say that some stuff in the Bible's weird. Because, okay, Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son. Jesus raised Darius' daughter. We talked about that. Jesus raised Lazarus. That's the most famous, I think, of all the cases. An earthquake raised many on Resurrection Sunday. I mean, that, that, was, that was crazy. When Jesus rose from the dead, all these graves opened up of genuine Old Testament believers, and these people all popped out of the grave and just showed up at Tim Hortons that morning. Hey, look, Joe's back. <laughs> They're all talking about Jesus. Peter raised Tabitha. We're looking at that here. Paul raised Eutychus after he killed him. No, exactly, Tanya. You got it right. I mean, because Paul preached this super long message in the second story worship center where they were meeting and Eutychus fell out of the window and died. That's why worship centers are all on the ground floor now. <laughs> so, you know, so Paul killed him by his preaching and then raised him back to life. Seems only fair. And then uh, the last one, of course, the one resurrection, Jesus was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in every case of someone being raised from the dead, resuscitated in every case, in all those nine cases of resuscitation, they all point to that one effectual resurrection that has changed everything and provided victory over sin in the grave. We're speaking of Christ being raised from the dead. In fact, when Lazarus was raised, Remember, he'd been in the tomb for several days and no one believed it could happen. And Jesus is talking to Mary and Martha. And in John 11, he says this, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he says this before his crucifixion, before his resurrection. I'm the resurrection and the life, he said. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he goes for the close. Do you believe this? And I'd ask us the same, do we believe this? Because it's absolutely critical that we do. 
Everything depends on this. We have, we have nothing. We have nothing if there is only a cross and only a crucifixion. In fact, to believe that there is only a cross and a crucifixion is to, is to follow a martyr. And it's pathetic that we would believe such a thing. There are people out there who are like, oh, I believe Jesus was a real person and I believe he died as a martyr and I really like his teachings and, and, and I'm so inspired to live my life the way Jesus lived his life. That's pathetic. Not to mention useless. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he gives that, that masterful chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says it's pitiful. If we preach a resurrection that didn't actually happen, if we're not going to be resurrected, and if Jesus was not resurrected, he says, that's pitiful. We are, he says, we are above all people most to be pitied. He says the whole exercise is futile. But then he adds in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in that last phrase, he's talking about our eventual resurrection with him. We depend wholly on God because there is no life, no hope apart from him. Everything, everything depends on the resurrection. And so have you declared your complete dependency on God, first and foremost for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, but have you also declared your dependency on God for your daily bread, for wisdom, for direction, for strength, for healing? In every possible way, we should be declaring our dependency on God. And because all of this happened, because of the healing of Aeneas, because of the healing, the, the raising of the dead, the resuscitation of Tabitha, because of all of this, notice verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And again, it's not about the miracle. It's about the message. It's about the gospel and the transformation of lives. So verse 43, Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon the Tanner. We're going to come back to that in chapter 10. Finally, this, very quickly, when I grasp the urgency of the gospel mission, I proclaim Jesus and nothing else. We live in a world of empty promises and vain hope. We hear catchy phrases and we watch feel-good messages, but where is the actual hope? What is it grounded in? The answer is nothing. I said we would come back to this phrase in verse 34, before he healed Aeneas, Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter was so careful to point to Jesus because there's no other message, there's no other savior, there's no other healer. On a previous occasion, when Peter was arrested and being grilled by the religious leaders, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he said, there is salvation in no one else. He's speaking about Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We proclaim Jesus and nothing else. And doing so is a matter 
of great urgency. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge as we come to the Scriptures again today that because of our sinful human nature, because of the flesh that we continue to dwell in, Father, that the truths of Your Word being spiritually discerned cannot be understood by us and certainly cannot be applied by us unless we have the light of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray in these moments, even as we continue to think about what we've heard here today, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding to cognitively understand what we've heard, what we've read from your word. But beyond that, God, that we would believe it that our will would be conformed to it, God, that we would be looking for all of the ways in the coming days, weeks, months, years, all of the ways to live this out. And I pray that for the mature believer here who has allowed the urgency of the mission to wane in their lives. I pray that for new believers amongst us. Father, that they would be emboldened to share their new faith with friends and family, co-workers. And God, I pray it for those watching on the live stream or on demand, those here in the room who have not yet surrendered their life to Christ, not yet found the forgiveness of sins. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them and convince them in this very moment to confess their sin. to surrender their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, hear our worship now as we, as we approach your throne, as we sing to you from our hearts. I pray this in Christ's name.